0: We're jumping back into the book of Hebrews in a series that we've called The Race. Now, we took a break around Christmas time, so we got out of the race. We gained about 15 pounds back. We've been taking naps. So, starting here, Time Change Sunday, we're jumping back on the track uh, as we are running our race for the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanna encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter seven, which is where we'll be today. I love that you bring your Bibles to church. Nothing wrong with the digital versions, as long as the digital versions don't lead you to be distracted the whole time, checking social media, email, to-do list, all that kind of stuff. So Hebrews chapter seven, as you're turning there, I just want to emphasize that after today, there's four Sundays to Easter. Easter is uh, Super Bowl Sunday. That's Resurrection Day. It's the best day in their calendar year for us as followers of Jesus. And we're praying that this Easter will be someone's first Easter because God used you to share the gospel with them. So every week, we're going challenging you. Have you had a gospel conversation this last week? Who's that one name, that person God's put in your heart We're praying for? Uh, I wanna encourage you to be sharing with them. And in fact, in two weeks, we're gonna be asking uh, just We're gonna have a little moment in our service to dedicate names before the Lord. People that we're praying would come to know Jesus Christ. So let's get after it, let's get serious about sharing our faith and uh, let's see what what God does. The great wise sage of our age, Ricky Bobby, once said, if you ain't winning, you lose it. Well, no disrespect to Mr. Bobby. But sometimes, being first isn't the best thing. Being first always isn't best. In fact, I bet you can think about things in your life where just because it was the first doesn't mean it was the best. Your first job probably hasn't been your best job. Your first date probably wasn't your best date. I can think, for me, my first sermon was definitely not my best sermon. Your first kid was probably not your best kid. All right, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm a baby. Anybody the baby of their family? Anybody? Amen for babies. Love it. All right. So, firstborn. All right. If you like to cook, I bet your first cooked meal wasn't your best meal. You get the point. Businesses know this. Just because you're the first, doesn't mean that you're the best. Any of y'all checked your MySpace page lately, anybody? You can be first, doesn't mean you're the best. The reason I say that is because today, in a very complicated portion of scripture, the argument that the author to the Hebrews is gonna make to people who believe that the first covenant, which then was the only covenant, was the best covenant, was in fact not the best covenant. Because of Jesus, the first isn't the best. We're gonna look at Hebrews chapter seven today, and we're gonna try to make our way through the entire uh, chapter, though I will save some comments and reserve the bulk of our time for the end, because I think this has a lot of relevance to your life today. But I want us to look at Hebrews chapter seven, and we're gonna read chapters uh, six, 19, and 20 which set up chapter seven, and then I wanna read the last verse of chapter seven. So these are the two bookends that set up what the author's doing here. I think that's really important. So let's all stand together. I wanna read for you Hebrews six, 19 and 20, and then chapter seven, verse 28. And this is what the author to the Hebrews says. Verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Skip down to verse 28 of chapter seven. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We're gonna talk today about Jesus being our high priest. So let's pray to him now. Oh Jesus, we just come to you and ask that you would take your word by the power of your spirit and God write it onto our hearts. Not so that we win some Bible trivia contest, but Lord, that we would walk in truth. Lord, remind us again of who you are today, through your word. We'll pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys grab a seat. So I'll be honest, we're gonna do some heavy lifting today. If you are new to the Bible, I'm probably gonna make comments of things that you have never heard about. Even if you've read the Bible a number of times, This is an amazing passage of scripture that I'm sure I will not do justice to. And I would encourage you to reread this sometime today or tomorrow or sometime in the week, Hebrews chapter seven. And it's important as we get into this text to be reminded about some things. Now, I'm going to give you just four factors that I think will help us understand this text. And this will be a bit of a refresher to jump back into the letter to the Hebrews. Since we began it last fall, and if you wanna go back on our YouTube channel and watch uh, some of those previous messages or listen to them, that might help you. But four factors that help us understand this text. Number one, the hearer's situation. There's a real temptation for them to, to backslide. You may remember that the book of Hebrews is written to a persecuted church. These are men and women, boys and girls who had put their faith in Christ. They were Jewish. They saw Jesus and came to believe that he is the Messiah that they were waiting on. And when they said yes to Jesus, their life got really difficult. You may think that if I say yes to Jesus, my life will get easier, but their life got infinitely harder when they said yes to Jesus. In fact, Hebrews 10 tells us that some of them lost their homes, some probably lost jobs, some lost relationships with family members. And we think the temple that was in Jerusalem was still standing at this point, which means that every week their relatives would get dressed up and go down to the temple and there they would meet a priest and the priest would sacrifice an animal on, on behalf of their sins. And I'm sure there's a part of them that's just doubting and struggling and wondering, have I made a mistake? Have I made a mistake? Is, is Jesus the Messiah, do do I still need a priest? Do I still need to go to the temple? Is this worth it? That is the setting in which the author is writing to the Hebrews. To make his point about Jesus being the high priest that they need, he brings up some different characters. There's four characters, really, if you wanna count Jesus as a character in the story, but the other three would be Melchizedek, learn about him, If you've never heard of him, that's okay. Uh, Abraham, who will play a role in this. And then Aaron. Now Aaron's name is not mentioned anywhere in Hebrews 7. But Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. And what we know from the scriptures is that those from the tribe of Levi were the ones instructed to keep the temple going. So a phrase I'm going to use today is the Levitical priesthood. And by that I mean basically the whole Old Testament temple system with priests and bulls and sacrifices and ritual. That, that whole thing, I'm gonna call the Levitical priesthood. All right, number three, central texts. In many ways, Hebrews is a sermon based on Psalm 110. You don't need to turn there, but I just wanna read one verse from Psalm 110 because this is really pivotal to the argument he makes in Hebrews 7. In verse four of Psalm 110, He says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a messianic Psalm pointing to when the Messiah comes, God says that you will be a priest forever like Melchizedek, which I think is why he's writing this in Hebrews chapter seven. Another key passage is Genesis 14. We'll make mention of that in a minute when Abram meets Melchizedek and gives us a type Uh, that points to Christ. Lastly, I want you to see the form of his argument. And this is what many people call a disjunctive syllogism. Now, I know you're like, what do you think, Clay? We don't know what a disjunctive syllogism is. Well, for all of you who are in the third grade, I'll I'll tell you. I'm just kidding. No one knows what a disjunctive syllogism is. It's those old school logic things, you know, your P's and Q's. You ever heard of that? And there's all these different arguments. Well, he uses a a disjunctive syllogism and and the flow of the argument goes like this. You have to choose, it's either P or Q. It's not Q, therefore it's P. And that's how he makes the argument. Like if I were to say, all right, I um, I got an apple in this hand, P, and I got a peach in this hand, Q. All right, apple, P, peach, Q. All right, so I'm gonna put one of them behind my back, P or Q. It's not the peach, therefore it's the what? It's the apple, right? So this is the whole point he's making here. Not about peaches and apples, but about Jesus. Now you're going, where are you going with this? He is gonna make an argument to prove why Jesus is a high priest. And there's gonna be a part of you that thinks, why are we talking about this? What's this have to do with my life if I'm a student in high school or I'm going to work tomorrow or I'm taking care of kids this week or I'm just trying to get a new job or I'm dealing with this crisis in my life? Everyone in here, I guarantee you, has walked in with some kind of pain in their life. Your marriage is falling apart, but you don't wanna talk about it. You're this huge fork in the road trying to make a decision that you can't make. You're dealing with this medical crisis that you don't don't know how to handle. This passage has amazing relevance for you, but we've gotta do some heavy lifting, building some foundational blocks before we can get to this whole notion of Jesus being the priest. So you guys hang with me and we'll get there, but let's look at the argument. What's his first premise? Premise number one. You gotta make a choice. Either Jesus's priesthood is best or the Levitical priesthood is best. One or the other. Either Jesus's priesthood is best or the Levitical priesthood is best. Kind of the P's and Q's, right? So here's his argument. Let's start with verses one through three. He said, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So one quick question is, who, who is this Melchizedek guy? The only time he shows up in scripture is in Genesis 14. And in Genesis 14, there's this battle that happens between these kings. Now, kings weren't kings like we think of today, kings of nations and countries. They're they're honestly like small town mayors. And and there was this battle that happened between different sets of kings such that one group of kings overtook the land of Sodom. Now, in the biblical story, at this point, Lot, who is the nephew of Abram, lives in Sodom. So when this battle happens, it means that the king took Lot, he took his wife, he took all their possessions. So in Genesis 14, Abram then, then rallies 318 of his own men and they go and win the battle with the Lord's help such that they bring back Lot, they bring back his wife, they bring back all his possessions. And then there's this really weird thing that happens in Genesis 14, verse 17 through 20. And, and out of nowhere, this Melchizedek guy shows up And two really important things happen in the story in Genesis 14. First of all, Abram tithes a tenth of everything he got out of Sodom to this king. The other thing that happens is that this king, who's also a priest named Melchizedek, blesses Abram. Now those two points are really important. What he told us in verses one through three of Hebrews seven is a couple of things. This Melchizedek guy, his name means king of peace because king of Salem. Salem comes from the same word as Shalom. He's also, his name means king of righteousness. Melchizedek, Melch is the uh, Hebrew word for king. Tzaddik is the word for righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. And in this moment, Abram gives a tithe to this king that comes out of nowhere. And that's what he means in verse three, without father, without mother, without genealogy. It doesn't mean that he's immortal or a ghost. It just means like, where did this guy come from? I don't know, he just shows up in the story and then he just disappears. Some people think, well, this must be Jesus in the Old Testament. No, I don't think this is Jesus. I think a key phrase here is that he says, Melchizedek in verse three, he is like the son of God. He's not the son of God. Again, you're going, where's he going with this? Well, he's building this argument. See, many of the Jews, especially in the book of the Hebrews, think, well, if the temple system is where God's perfection lies, then I need to make sure I'm always giving within that first temple covenant. But Abram, the one through whom God gave a covenant, ties to someone outside the covenant. We'll we'll, we'll make all that clear in a second, but look at verse four. Now, observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth, Of the choices, spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their countrymen, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So if you're Jewish, you are brought up under the system where you go to the temple and this is the temple that was run by the Levites and you're thinking, no, what's proper is that we always as Jews give to the temple system. But what he's saying in this text is that Abram, the one through whom God gave a covenant, actually made the first tithe to someone outside of the covenant, this random guy named Melchizedek who was a priest and who was a king. And he says in verse seven, but without any dispute, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In that instance, though Abram is the recipient of God's blessing, it's Melchizedek who blesses Abram. You would think the story would go, and Abram blessed Melchizedek. No, in the story, Melchizedek blesses Abram, proving to be the greater in that instant. Verse eight, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, has paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his forefather when Melchizedek met him. One time Jesus interacted with some of the religious leaders and they were talking about their father and they told Jesus, our father is Abraham. And this is in John eight. And then Jesus actually reprimands them, saying, no, your father is the devil. But see, in their mind, because they were connected to Abraham, meant that they were good with God. I think many of the people in the book of Hebrews would have thought the same thing. Hey, we're connected to Abram, we're good to go. But what he's proving is that in this story, Abram actually ties to someone greater than himself. Now this is all gonna get to Jesus, to remind them that there's someone outside of this first temple covenant through whom God wants to be your priest. But he's building this argument. So he's just illustrating the story, making points about it, verse one through 10. Verse 11 through 19, now he wants to to deconstruct, if you will, the Levitical priesthood. So here's premise number two. The Levitical priesthood is inferior. It's inferior. There were people who thought that they were made perfect through this system of the temple and the bulls and the goats and the sacrifices and the day of atonement and, and all these rituals the Jewish people held to, they thought that, that is the way to become perfect. I'm sure the family members in Hebrews who were belittling those who had come to Christ were thinking, you guys are not right with God anymore because you, you believe in Jesus instead of going to the temple. You believe in Jesus instead of going to have a, a, a lamb sacrifice for your sins on the day of atonement. You have put yourself outside of God's perfect way. And what he wants to do in verse 11 through nine is actually start to break down why the Levitical priesthood is inferior, implying then why Jesus is superior. Look at verse 11. So if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. And then he says in verse 12, this is a really important statement. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. You might could read the first part of verse 12, since the priesthood is changed. There, of necessity, there takes a place in the change of law also. And this is what I mean by that. When we tend to think about the Old Testament law, we tend to think about all these rules of things to do and not to do. And some of them are very obvious. Do not steal, do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not have false idols. And then you get all these really weird ones like, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk, whatever that means. And you got all these weird commands. And we tend to think that's what the law is, all these commandments. But to a Jewish person, the law is not merely just a long list of to-dos and not to-dos. It's the whole temple system. When you guys start your Bible reading plans in the beginning of the year, I mean, how many of your Bible reading plans have just come crashing down on the shores of Leviticus every single year? Because you get there and you're thinking, oh, all these things about the measurement of the temple and the priest and the ephod and how long his beard is and, and where the jewels go and And the the size of the walls of the temple and you're going, what? I mean, honestly, I know God, I'm supposed to care about this, but what in the world does this have to do with me? What he's saying in verse 12 is that since a new priest has come, Jesus, it has fundamentally changed the law because now the law has been completed in Jesus. He goes on in verse 13. For the one about whom these things is said belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was ascended from Judah, a tribe with reverence to which Moses said nothing concerning priests. In other words, all the priests came through Levi, but Jesus didn't come through Levi, he came through Judah. And this is clearer still, verse 15, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, now this is what he's saying about Jesus. He has become a priest, not on the basis of a law, a physical requirement. Now, if you were a priest, guess what your son was gonna be? A priest. And guess what his son was gonna be? A priest. And guess what his son was gonna be? A priest. See, it was through the bloodline, a physical requirement that made somebody a priest in the tribe of Levi. But Jesus Christ was not made a priest because of his bloodline, but rather, as he says in verse 16, but according to the power of an indestructible life. You know what made Jesus a high priest? It was his resurrection. That right now he is reigning as the high priest through the power of his resurrection. And we have a new priest. He's he's breaking down the Levitical priesthood, showing it to be inferior, They're implying that Jesus is superior. And in verse 17, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Saying the Psalm 110 is ultimately about Jesus. For on the one hand, there is the nullification of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. I think it's important for us to know that God is not saying, you know, you guys just need to take three-fourths of your Bible, all this old stuff, all this old covenant and just get rid of it, you don't need it. It's bad, it's evil. Hey, my bad, I made a mistake, I, I brought Jesus, plan B? No, he's not saying that the law is evil or wicked, but he's saying in light of Jesus, it's not profitable, it's useless, it's weak. Remember the temple system? They had all these corridors where you would go to what they called the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go behind the veil. See the picture here of the veil. Remember that? That only the high priest could go into that veil. And, and you better hope that that high priest was holy. You better hope that he had confessed his sin. You better hope that he was right with God because God might kill him and God may not forgive your sin because of his sin. Only one person could get behind that veil. But did you know all that's fundamentally changed? See, through the power of Jesus' resurrection, I love how he talks about it at the end of verse 19. He says, since there is the introduction of a better hope, a better hope through which we now come near to God. And so this is his whole point, all right? This is where we start to land the plane in terms of what this has to do with you and me. The whole conclusion of his argument is is clear and simple. It is this, Jesus's priesthood is superior. Now the thing is, You need Jesus as a high priest, but you never think about it. A lot of us functionally still have Jesus hanging on a cross in our minds. Because when we think about the gospel and who Jesus is, we think, the number one thing that Jesus did was he died on the cross for my sins. And that's why he came to die on the cross for my sins. Now, it is true that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. But let me also remind you, he's not still hanging there. He got off the cross, was buried. Three days later, he rose again, which is God's way of saying that your death was sufficient. And then after that, he made appearances for about 40 days. And then after that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is right now, right at this very minute when we read his word and we pray to him and we sing to him and we live for him. Jesus right now is your high priest. And you need that so bad and you don't even know that you need it that bad. What does it look like for Jesus to be our high priest. Or maybe I can say it like this, so what? You're thinking I'm a, I'm a sophomore in high school, so what? I'm a grandparent, so what? I'm dealing with this cancer diagnosis, so what? Let me tell you so what. You know what's so good about being thinking that Jesus is your high priest? That's what he does in verse 20 through 28. Number one is this. Because he's our high priest, he guarantees, guarantees our salvation. Now in verse 20 and 21, he deals first with the God, that the fact that God swore that his priesthood would come with an oath. That's what he says, and to the extent that it was not without an oath. Verse 21, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, there's the language of an oath. God has sworn this, God only takes three oaths in scripture, one to Abraham, One to the Israelites, the third is right here, to Jesus Christ. God has sworn that he is a priest forever. By the same extent, Jesus also has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now next week in chapter eight, we'll look at why it's a better covenant. But Jesus is said to be the guarantee. Your text may say the guarantor. Do you know what a guarantor is? A a mediator is someone who, comes in between two warring parties and fights for reconciliation. Like maybe in a business deal, you had to hire a mediator or in a marriage, you had a mediator. And the mediator is not personally involved in the conflict, but the mediator steps in and resolves the conflict. That is different than a guarantor. A guarantor is someone who puts their word and their resources on the line and says, I will step into the middle of this and I will fix this myself. The apostle Paul in the book of Philemon's uh, Philemon said of his runaway slave, he said, if he's, if he's run up any kind of account, put it on my tab, I'll pay for it. That's what a guarantor does. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his resurrection and him sitting right now in the hand of God, has guaranteed your salvation. Imagine if you are the original audience hearing this, you're thinking, maybe I need to go to the temple to be right with God. Maybe I need to keep all those rituals to be right with God. Maybe I need to not eat you know, certain foods to be right with God. Maybe I, need to do, maybe I need to do all these things and we need to be reminded that Christianity is much less about us holding on to God and much more about God holding on to us. And God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised from the grave and now to be ascended and right at the right hand of his father to guarantee he is our pledge in his resurrection that one day we will rise to be with him forever. He's your priest. He guarantees and what God starts, he finishes. Number two, so what? What? This text tells us that Jesus permanently, permanently intercedes for us. Thinking about the priests, verse 23, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. The greatest medical issue these priests kept dealing with is dying. We like this guy, and then he died. This guy served as priest and then he died. We like this priest and then he died. We didn't like this priest. We're glad he died. But then his son came. We liked him. But then he died. They keep dying and dying and dying and dying and dying and dying. And all of us are replaceable. I'll die. You'll die. All of us are replaceable. But listen to this Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds the priesthood permanently. Forever. There is no other priest needed. You don't need to go to the temple. He's your forever priest, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus intercedes for us, which means that he is our advocate, which means he he hears and responds to our prayers. He pleads for us. He advocates for us. He, He is our champion, if you will. Now, now, I am a lousy intercessor. I'm just, Can I just be honest with y'all? Like sometimes you'll ask me to pray for stuff and I just forget. Or I get tired. I get distracted. I don't feel like it. Now y'all look at me with all that judgment. Y'all do the same exact thing. Y'all forget stuff all the time. As humans, we are lousy intercessors, but he is the perfect intercessor, amen. And he lives to make intercession for us. When I was a kid, Seventh grade, I remember I went to school and this was purely an accident, but I I did. I went to school and discovered that I had fireworks in my backpack, which is a no-no, you don't do that. You know why I did it? Because I'm seventh grade and you're dumb, all right? So seventh grade. So the principal finds this out and that's like immediate, at least suspension, if not expulsion. And I'm sitting there in his office. I've been there before and we're, (laughs) you know. But I I had something going for me. See, my dad was friends with that principal, And I learned a lesson then that I have carried with me the rest of my life. You know what that lesson is? Success has a lot to do with who you know, amen? That's a good lesson for life. And I'm grateful that in spite of my sin, in spite of my failures, it's not just that I know Jesus, but that he knows me. And he knows you. And he pleads your case continually, right now, right now. You're dealing with a struggle, Jesus knows about it, he pleads for it continually. You're dealing with a trial in your life, Jesus knows about it, and right now he's your advocate. He's your priest right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. But that's not true for all of y'all. See, in verse 25 it says, he's able to save forever those who come to God through him. See, if you try to get to God apart from Jesus, you don't have an intercessor on your behalf. What's the other so what? The other so what is this, I love this. Jesus never has to be replaced. He never has to be replaced. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled. Now isn't that different than those priests in the Old Testament? I mean, they were good guys and all, but they weren't holy. They weren't undefiled. And not only that, Jesus is separated from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens. That's his way of saying right now, he's in the throne room of God pleading on our behalf as our priest who has no daily need like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because he did this once for all time when he offered up him self. He holds this office forever, which means that you never have to be worried about being taken care of, because you have a high priest right now, right now, who's holding you in his hand. There's a song that we've sung all morning. I I just love I love the text of this, and I think it goes so much with what the author's doing because the author's writing to people who are struggling, like, do I, do I need to go back into the whole temple system? He's going, like, no, no, you don't, need, you don't need to. That system is weak, it's useless. You have a perfect system now. That system is what has been secured for you through the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ as your priest. And you know what that means for you right now, no matter what you're going through? it means that you can actually sing this song and mean it. And the text goes like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands and my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. You know what that old English phrase means? No tongue can bid me thence depart. It means there's not a person, there's not a situation, there's not a trial, there's not a doctor's prescription, there's not anybody else who can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And you have a priest right now before the throne of God with your name written on his heart. What a savior. (laughs) Jesus, we come to you and just thank you that you're our high priest. We thank you that right now we have a strong and perfect plea because of your death, because of your resurrection, because of your ascension and because of your priesthood. Lord, you are our priest. Thank you for being there for us, for holding us when no one else can, for knowing a perfect will for our life when no one else does. You are before the throne of God and we rejoice in that. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being our priest.